If you've been here the last few weeks, uh, you know that we've been in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter to the church in Corinth, um, and we've titled this series, Divided, uh, obviously speaking to a very relevant issue in our day as we've all been pulled at the seams uh, of, of our unity as a culture, but even as a church, uh, we've been impacted in much the same way. And uh, the church in Corinth is an example par excellence uh, of, a, of a church that was stressed and strained and pulled apart. And what we get in 1 Corinthians is the apostles' instructions to such a church struggling in this way. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you're following along, the New Testament starts about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Uh, it starts Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians are right after that. And we're in First Corinthians chapter 1. We're especially going to be focusing on verses 18 through 25. But before I read our text for this morning, I sort of want to reorient us to where we are specifically in Paul's letter and the context of what he's addressing in the Corinthian church. As I said, much of what Paul is speaking to is the need for the church to be unified and not be divided. So he said in last week's passage, chapter 1, verse 10, let there be no divisions among you. You, church, be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he's calling for unity and he's speaking against Division, But what we quickly find out is that division is not the Corinthians' core issue. Division is what they are all experiencing. Division is what's all over the surface of the situation. But division is not their core issue. It's worldliness. The problem beneath the problem is worldliness. And here's what I mean. The members of this church were conforming to the priorities and values of Corinth more than they were conforming to the way of Christ. Another way to say it is that their identity as Corinthians had superseded their identity as Christians. And one of the ways that their worldliness played out was by attaching themselves to a certain leader, likely because of that leader's intellectual and rhetorical capability, and apparently others in the church would choose their favorite leader based on who baptized them. You remember from verse 12, Paul calls them out for this. He says, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or others, I follow Cephas. So different members of this church had their favorite leader that they identified with, that they appreciated the most, and division occurred along these lines. And this was a very Corinthian thing to do. It was a very worldly thing to do, to find your favorite philosopher, to find your favorite wisdom teacher, your favorite spiritual guru, then attach yourself to them, identify with them, and argue with the other people who chose a different philosopher teacher. So if this were to play itself out today in our world, in our society, some might say, I am of Tucker Carlson. Still others, I am of Ben Shapiro, or I am of Joe Rogan, or I am of Ezra Klein. And it's through the identification with these different cultural commentators that the battle lines are drawn, right? This is my guy. This is my leader. This is my spokesman, and he will outsmart and put down whoever he or we face. This is a worldly thing to do today. It was a worldly thing to do in ancient Greece, and it's a worldly thing 
that can infiltrate the church. Well, at the end of that section, after highlighting this problem, Paul makes a statement that kind of bridges to and connects with the passage we're going to be focusing on today. He says in verse 17, essentially, hey, you guys are choosing your favorite leader based on who baptized you, but Christ didn't even send me to baptize. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. And you guys are choosing your favorite leader based on who's the best speaker preacher, but we aren't to preach so as to win others over with our words of eloquent wisdom. Because if it's our powerful oratory skills and powerful preaching ability that we use to win people over, then we are robbing the cross of its power. And we're making the message of Christ about us, about our wisdom as a speaker, about our power as a preacher. So he makes that statement in verse 17, and it's from there that he launches into the section that we're looking at today. And it's also in verse 17, you heard it, where he introduces the twin concepts of wisdom and power. He says, if I rely on my eloquent wisdom to preach the gospel, then I rob the cross of its power. So wisdom and power were to Corinthian society what freedom and equality are to American society. Because every culture has its values, its ideals. Well, in the same way that we as Americans cherish freedom and equality, Corinthians celebrated wisdom and power. And now Paul is going to declare what true wisdom and true power really looks like. So let's read these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, therefore, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe." For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You thought that you needed to try real hard, but actually, you needed to relax. I think I need to be impressive, to put on a show, to look the part, but actually, I just need to be myself. We think we need to talk and talk and talk in order to be heard and have influence, but actually, we need to listen. In other words, the answers to life are often a total contradiction to the solutions that we apply to life. Hard workers need to relax, stage actors need to be authentic, and talkers need open ears more than we need open mouths. The answers to life 
are often a total contradiction to the way we normally operate. One of the ways this plays out in my family every year around Christmas, we of course love the holiday, we celebrate, we decorate, we shower our kids with all sorts of great experiences and fun gifts, and then at some point towards the end of the holiday, after they've gotten all these fun times, after they've gotten all these awesome presents, we'll say to them, you know guys, Christmas is actually about giving as much as it is about getting. And Jesus even said in Acts chapter 20 that it's better to give than receive. It's better to give away your money, to give away gifts, than it is to get those things. Well, when they hear that, it's like their brains backfire, like pow, pow, and their neurons short circuit. Like they just can't believe It's better to give than receive. That is crazy talk, Dad. That's the exact opposite. Because the answers to life are often a total contradiction to our conventional wisdom. The answers to life often completely contradict the way we normally operate. Well, perhaps nowhere in Scripture is this more explicit than the passage we're looking at today. The citizens of Corinth championed wisdom And each person would find their sage, their life philosopher who could speak eloquently and who could offer insights into life and following the right teacher and obtaining the right wisdom would give you power. It would connect you to influencers and the movers and shakers of Corinthian society. But it's into this wisdom-obsessed, power-hungry culture that the Apostle Paul declares the contradictory message that the wisdom and power of God are found in the cross of Christ. And this message lands on the Corinthians in the same way my Christmas morning lesson lands on my children. It feels like a complete contradiction and their brains have to rewire because Paul, it sounds like you're saying that true wisdom is foolish. It sounds like you're saying true power is weakness. Paul says, yes. God's wisdom is seen in the foolishness of the cross. God's power is on display in the weakness of the cross. Look again with me at verse 18. Let's see this in the text itself. This verse really stands as the thesis or main point of all that Paul will say. Verse 18, he writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness. It's stupid. It's nonsensical to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, oh, the word of the cross is the power of God. So despite appearances, despite our conventional wisdom, God's wisdom and God's power, Paul says, are known and experienced through the word of the cross, the confounding message of Jesus' death. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that the bloody cross is the epitome of power and wisdom? Or are you after some higher experience? Are you looking for some human guru who can give you some mystical, deeper knowledge that can set you apart and satisfy your soul? If that's you, if the sacrifice and humiliation of the cross has left the center of your life and you've gone after something else, someone else, Paul is calling us back. 
He's calling us to confess the wise foolishness of the world. Confess what the wisdom of the world really is. That's foolishness. Let's confess that the so-called wise foolishness of the world really is. Look at verse 19. Paul says that God is intent on exposing human wisdom for what it really is. Utter folly. And he quotes from Isaiah's prophecy Isaiah chapter 29, where God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So God said this during a time when he had predicted through Isaiah that Jerusalem, the holy city, was going to be attacked and besieged by a foreign army. Isaiah had predicted that with a word from the Lord, but the wise men of Judah... The leaders of the temple said, no, we'll be fine. Isaiah is just some crazy prophet. Well, then later, God reaffirms through this verse that Paul now quotes, that your wise men are fools. And your discerning are dumb. And I'm going to prove it to you. As I said, God is intent on exposing human wisdom for what it really is. Utter folly. And so by implication, he's urging the Corinthians and he is urging us, don't fall for it. Human schemes to achieve the good life are going to be debunked in the end. Man created solutions to find lasting peace and deep joy are going to be exposed after all. And the apostle is so confident that this is the case, he begins to call them all out in verse 20. He says, who is the wise one? Who is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Today he would have put it, where is the Harvard professor? Who is the cultural commentator? Where is the philosophizing podcaster? Who is the sage YouTuber? Has not God made foolish all this wisdom of the world? And again, the implication is, church, don't fall for it. All the world's wisdom, all the self-help books, all the life insights, all the TED Talks, all the political pontificating are ultimately going to fall short for you. And here's why. Look at what he says in verse 21. It's because, quote, the world did not know God through wisdom. As brilliant as some of these cultural commentators are, as intelligent as some of our public intellectuals are, Elon Musk, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ta-Nehisi Coates, many more brilliant thinkers, gripping speakers, accomplished writers, but as ingenious and gifted as these leaders are, their wisdom won't get you one millimeter closer to knowing God. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world because the world did not know Him through their wisdom. Friend, are you ready to admit that? Are you ready to confess all earthly wisdom, all human manufactured wisdom, it is foolishness in relation to the knowledge of the gospel? Human discernment about the good life and our intellectual efforts to achieve prosperity, as compelling as it may seem, as rhetorically polished as it may be, it will ultimately be exposed for the foolishness that it is and it won't get us any closer to the knowledge of God. Church, let's confess 
the wise foolishness of the world and let's profess the foolish wisdom of the cross. We must admit and confess that the world's wisdom is empty, but we also must profess and embrace the foolish wisdom of the cross. So listen again to verse 21, this time all the way through. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it therefore pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So through the world's wisdom, the world did not know. But through the preaching of the cross, folks get saved. The wisdom of the world sounds eloquent. It sounds compelling and special. But those who follow it, all of them remain in darkness and complete ignorance when it comes to who God is and how we can experience salvation. But when we preach the cross... And when people respond in faith, salvation is unleashed in their lives. The power of sin is loosed from over their lives. The burden of our shame is released from over us because on the cross, Jesus defeated sin. And on the cross, Jesus carried our shame. So as foolish as the cross may seem, No political mastermind, no public intellectual, no thought leader, and none of the wisdom they offer could ever do for us what God has done for us through the cross. Breaking sin's power, freeing us from shame, bringing us into a renewed relationship with God. Only Jesus, only Jesus' work on the cross has accomplished those things for us. And again, the implication being, as foolish as you may feel, and as contradictory as it may seem, don't abandon the centrality of the cross in your life. Don't abandon the centrality of the cross in your church. Let's profess the foolish wisdom of the cross. But sadly, as is often the case with us, the cross isn't enough. We want something else, something more, something better. And he points out how this is true for different people in different cultures. Verses 22 and going forward. He says, Jews demand powerful signs and Greeks demand eloquent wisdom. But a powerful, tangible demonstration of God's spirit, a sign, is not necessarily what we need. And enlightening, penetrating human analysis, wisdom, is not going to lead to the knowledge of God. So what the Jews want and what the Greeks want isn't necessarily what they need or what is going to work. They want powerful signs. They want eloquent wisdom. But verse 23, what we preach and what brings salvation is Christ crucified. It's scandalous to Jews to think that Messiah would die as a criminal, and it's ludicrous to Greeks to think that a divine sage would advocate selflessness. The message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to self-righteous Jews and its foolishness to pompous Greeks. But, verse 24, that very same message is the power of God and the wisdom of God for us who have been called, for us who have believed. And so Paul is urging us, profess, endure in professing the foolish wisdom of the cross. But many are scandalized by the message of the cross. Many stumble at the idea 
that we need the cross to be saved. We need the cross to know God. I want to share with you how many stumble because of the cross in our culture. This is one of the ways the scandalizing nature of the cross plays itself out with the people who are all around us. Robert Bella is a sociology professor at UC Berkeley, and he especially focuses on the place of religion in American society. And one of his landmark books, it's called Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. In that book, he discusses how individualism and a focus on self has impacted religion in our country. And he gives this example of a survey response that he conducted with a woman named Sheila. And he writes this, quote, Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and who describes her faith as, quote, Sheilaism. She says, quote, I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic. And I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. My faith is Sheilaism. It's my own little voice. Bella continues, Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining my own Sheilaism, she says, it's just try to love yourself, be gentle with yourself, you know, I guess take care of each other. I think he would want us to do that. And Bella later writes that this young woman is describing what is common for so many in our culture, namely that, quote, self has become the main form of reality. Self has become the main form of reality. In other words, the self is where we find truth. The self is where we find meaning. The self is where we find God. That's our culture, church. That's the air everybody's breathing. I don't need religion as traditionally defined. I don't need some holy book to tell me how to behave. I don't need some pastor to tell me what to believe. My religion is self-determined. My life is self-directed. My God is discovered within. So now think how the cross makes our culture stumble because the cross says that we do not have free and open access to God within ourselves. The cross says that we have sin within ourselves. Sin that separates us from God. The cross says that our sin, because of it, we've lost connection with God and we are so lost and sinful that we needed God himself to become a man and live the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we should have died in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus, the Son of God, did. He lived the life of perfect love and strength and then he died taking upon himself the judgment for our sin on the cross. That's an offensive message. That's a scandalous message in our individualistic, self-focused, self-reliant culture. It's an offense. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. But for us who are being saved, that very same message is the wisdom and power of God. Because it's in the message of the cross, for example, that we have found love. A sacrificial love that our hearts yearned for. A kind of love that we never thought possible. 
And in the message of the cross, we have found forgiveness. My conscience, with all the rotten stuff I've done, my conscience has been cleansed like I never could have dreamed because of the word of the cross and the message of grace that is within it. Namely, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because in Christ, on the cross, your sin has already been condemned. The message of the cross, though foolish to many others, it is to us wisdom. And it is us power. Because in the cross we have experienced love. In the cross, we have found forgiveness, and that is just the start. I could go on and on with all of the gifts, with all of the beauty, with all of the glory that flow forever for us from Calvary. And so I appeal to you, church. I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep the cross central in your heart. Keep the cross central in your life. Keep the cross central in this assembly. If not, you will eventually grow arrogant. And then you will grow arrogant towards each other. And then you will be divided. That is the recipe for church division. So keep the cross central. Stay enamored with Jesus' work on the cross. And that will enable you to stay together, to stay united. And if you are not a follower of Christ, if you have not trusted in Jesus yet, maybe you've found that this message is confronting your self-reliance. Maybe you do feel a sense of offense that you would need Jesus to live and die on your behalf to be saved. Maybe you are offended. Maybe there's a part of you, maybe there's a part of you that's intrigued. Maybe there's something in you stirring. Hey, maybe there's more to this than I thought. Maybe there really is redemption. Maybe there really is hope. If that's you, if you feel that movement of the Spirit stirring inside of you, I encourage you, act on it. There will be some leaders up here after the service to pray with you. I'll be down front, Josh, Jonathan, any of us would love to converse with you, ask questions, look at scripture, understand the gospel for yourself. So I encourage you, act on it, and we'd love to take the next steps with you in your journey of faith. But church, let's stand as we prepare to respond to God's word together. We'll praise the Lord in response to his word. Let's have a moment of silence first. And then I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, 
We come before you now in the name of Christ, the crucified one. We gather this morning under the cross, at the foot of the cross. Our hearts are bowed low with gratitude, with joy for the mercy of Christ, for the love of God displayed on the cross. We are here in the name of our crucified King, Jesus. God, we thank you for the contradictory sounding and yet still incredibly powerful message of the gospel that has resounded throughout the ages and around the world and has met us here in this place. That there is one whose life is blameless and there was one whose death was sacrificial such that we could be brought back into relationship with God, such that all of our shame could be separated from us as far as east and the west. Lord, praise God for this good news. We celebrate the cross. We lift high the cross. And I pray, God, that as we do so, you would keep this church together. May love prevail over hatred. May humility prevail over arrogance because we are shaped by the cross, because we live under the humiliation of the cross. We are so broken, God. But we thank you for your grace in the death of Jesus. Father, I pray for any here who are offended by this message. I pray for any here who feel arrogance and their self-strength rising within them that you would bring us all low, Father. You would humble all of us and draw us by the power of your Spirit to a place of humility, to a place of faith. We pray for that. We celebrate still together in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's continue to sing.